Welcome uh, to this conversation on Ideas for India. Uh, I'm E. Somanathan. I'm a professor of economics at the Indian Statistical Institute in Delhi. And I work in the field of environmental economics. And it's my privilege today to uh, talk to Professor Sir Partha Daskupta, who's Frank Ramsey Professor Emeritus at the University of Cambridge, and one of the most eminent economists of the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, he's a well-known economic theorist. He's had a huge impact on the field of ecological economics and environmental economics in particular, which is what our conversation today will relate to. Partha has received numerous honors and awards. He's so distinguished that it speaks for itself. And the reason that we are having this conversation this particular time is because earlier this year, the British government published the Economics of Biodiversity, the Daskapta Review. And it was commissioned by the government to investigate the relationship of the economy to biodiversity and nature more broadly. And they asked Partha to lead it, which he has done and produced a masterful report. And I thought that this is a great time uh, for us to have this conversation and for all of you to have the chance to uh, listen to Partha. So Partha, with that, um, I wanted to begin by asking you about your own research. So primarily, economists think of you as an economic theorist. And that's the reason for that being that you have spanned so many fields of economics in your career, and particularly making contributions to economic theory and social choice and mechanism design and game theory in industrial organization and competition policy in uh, growth theory in income accounting, wealth accounting. So you've done a, a great deal of work in a great many fields. Um, and of course, I've left out several of them. But one thing that you have returned to in your career repeatedly has been the relationship of the economy to nature. Can you tell us how you first got interested, why you first got interested in this, and why is it that it's been such a consistent theme in your work? Even though you've ranged all over the place, this has always been something you have never left, so to speak. It is a real pleasure to see you after such a long time, first of all, and a pleasure to have this discussion with you. Uh, you're asking a very sensitive question, very uh, personal question, which is right and proper. We're all friends. And self-reflection uh, is treacherous territory because we tend to be more than usually biased in doing that. I'll try. I think the inf great influence that I've, I've discovered recently was my geography teacher uh, when I was in Rajikhat school just outside Benares. That school had a profound influence on me. Outside my family, of course, that had the greatest of influence on me, but outside that, my school. I was there between 13 and 15. I matriculated from the Uttar Pradesh board in 1958. Is that the Krishnamurti school? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyway, yes. I, had a school teacher, I had a geography teacher, Dr. Vishwanathan, who I think in retrospect, had a very powerful influence on me because he taught geography as an analytical subject, not as a, a descriptive what is to where, where, which, where cities lie or you know, name. 
here's a blank map of the world and here, tell me where Delhi is or where Washington yes. is. So I think that's what happened because otherwise it's very hard for me to explain why uh, in 1968, which is when I got my PhD, my crucial chapter in it was on the concept of optimum population, the mutual, uh, the, the joint deliberation of optimum savings and optimum number of people in a Ramsey's framework. That hadn't been done. It hadn't been touched by anybody, actually, so far as I know, at least from the published records. And I think I did a pretty complete, comprehensive job about it. But there's one thing in it which I still am very proud of, or, or this increasingly more proud of, because you know, if you looked in the dirt to see if there's anything that you've done which is worthwhile, which was that instead of thinking in terms of a production function with this capital and labor, I had a biosphere in it. Now, I didn't call it biosphere, I called it land. Because I didn't even know the term biosphere then. And it had its limitations because it was a fixed, indestructible uh, asset in the model. We know that the biosphere is not that. Nevertheless, it was a break because it was a straightforward constant in terms of scale between capital and labor. And that led to a finite optimum population. Right. And that was a big break from the growth theory that was being demonstrated. So I suspect that. And the other reason, I think the reason I kept on coming back to it is that good economic theorists were not working on that subject. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to avoid competing with others. <laughs> not because I, I'm a nice person, but um, well, I don't think that I'll win a competition. We all have these little phobias, I suppose, but I think nobody was working on it. And then gradually I realized, extremely beautiful subject. And if you bring the full force of economics, which is a, about as grand a subject discipline as it can be, your own work reflects it. We forget how beautiful it is to make sense of such an incredibly complicated system as the human community uh, in a comprehensive, coherent way. Uh, and you add nature to it. Oh boy, you're really in the gravy. This is extraordinarily beautiful. So I think gradually I've been nipping away at it periodically. I wrote six books, which have nature in it very uh, strongly, aspects of it. Um, and the review. So to begin with, the first time that you dealt with the problem analytically, you thought of it in terms of a resource constraint on the economy. Yes, as a, it was a fixed factor. Yes. So between capital and labor, there was decreasing returns to scale. And then later on, you introduced the idea that the resource itself could be depleted depending on the actions taken by people in the economy. That's right. Initially, I worked on, with Jeff Heal, the exhaustible resource case. Right. And really quickly realized that, in fact, the most interesting cases are not that kind of exhaustible one in a finite amount, which doesn't have any reproductive rate. But the biosphere is a self-regenerating resource, if you like. And so my interest moved in that direction. And subsequent work, um, my work with Jeff Hill in 1979, was directed at the uh, renewable resource case in various forms and shapes. And of course, I looked at the problem from various angles like non-observability, uh, you, you name it, all the points that you made in your introductory remarks. Right. So um, just to sort of go forward and since 
The work that you do is, I think, a major stream in the history of economic thought on the subject. So in your 1979 book with Jeff Heal, by that time, were you thinking, was the emphasis already more on renewable resources? Or did that book at that stage address only mineral resources? Well, the thrust of it was the renewable one mineral resources, oil and natural gas. But there are two crucial chapters in it, and I'm glad you've asked this. One is chapter three on externalities, and I was led to the, to the notion of social capital, communitarian management of our grazing fields and so forth. But the, the renewable resource part came in chapter five. There is a chapter on fisheries, forests, and so forth. This was followed up by a book in 1982, three years after uh, the control of resources, which laid the groundwork for my review that came out this year. Pretty much every chapter in it is really hinting at something. I didn't clean it up, but uh, I laid the groundwork there, yeah. Yes, I read your chapter on common property resources in that book, The Control of Resources. You wrote that when you were in Delhi, actually. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was visiting the Institute for Economic Growth for a term uh, made possible by uh, one of the greatest economist India has produced, uh, Shukumar Chakravarti. He had a finger on many, many pies at that time. I think he was a member of the planning commission. And he right. thought it would be nice to have me over for a while so that we could chat. And um, to what extent do you think that your trip to India influenced your thinking in that regard? Since you spent quite some time here, I know that you were visiting India frequently, but on that occasion, you spent a long time here. Yeah. Well, that was one, one term, three months, actually. It was the autumn term in the Institute of Economic uh, Growth. And what was interesting thing about them was that they were teaching me things that I had, not, I had not known of. So, yes, I got a lot from my colleagues there in, in over tea. And nitty-gritty of, uh, of Kanchan Chopra was there, for example, and she was a student of the ones, I think. And then, right. of course, was a colleague. And so they gave me a lot of information over discussions about how our local communities manage their infrastructure. But their infrastructure is not roads and buildings. Their infrastructure is the local woodland fishing port or the coastal fishery or whatever. And that, to me, suggested a big room for economic theorizing to try and understand why social norms develop in one way rather than another, how the ecological imprint, the the way the ecology has an imprint on our behavior, our collective behavior, not just individual behavior. Now, of course, at that time, I didn't do it. That came later. But, you know, like anybody else, all academics, we accumulate pieces of information which we file away and then suddenly find that you have the analytical tools to make use of it. So I'm no different. I mean, we all are the same that way. So I, I know that by the early 90s, when your book on inquiry into well-being and destitution came out, you were quite neck deep in uh, this idea of the economy being fundamentally located in the biosphere. I'm not sure whether you used the term biosphere that, at that stage. No, you're quite right. I didn't, because it had sort of crystallized in my mind quite that because at that time I was very much into the small into the community structure right I didn't relate it quite effectively with growth and development economics at that time it was much more micro oriented the individual and the household and the community level 
Right. That's lucky because of my expertise at that, that moment. Uh, I'm very proud of that book, by the way. You know, I mean, I think uh, a good deal of it had to do with, uh, for example, nutrition economics, because I've been working on that with Devraj Ray. Right. Uh, and published some papers together, which both of us, I'd like to think, are very proud of. And I wanted to put them all together and to look at non-linearities, if you like, in some sense, although it didn't, uh, didn't flesh it out in the way that it has in the review. But um, the book got killed, effectively. It sort of disappeared. <laughs> I'm very proud of it, heck of a lot. It had terrific reviews by non-economists, but it had one devastatingly bad review um, from a prominent economist. And I remember reading that book uh, early in my PhD work. Um, so probably midway through my PhD work at some point. So maybe I was fortunate to have missed that review. <laughs> yeah, but in that book, certainly you very much by that time have the perspective of the economy embedded in nature. Although, as you say, you did it from a microeconomic perspective solely and you didn't bring a macroeconomic perspective to it. So when do you think that you started to bring in the macroeconomic perspective? I think it was about the time we founded the Sandy, with whom you, you and I are deeply related. Um, discussions with Carl Joran Mailer uh, of Bayer Institute. I was much involved with the Bayer Institute. And the Institute was revitalized in 1991, and I was asked by Carl to be chairman of their scientific board. For our audience, I should say this is the, the Bayer Institute for Ecological Economics in Stockholm. And when I say Sandy, I mean the South Asian network of development and environmental economists, which is centered in Kathmandu, at Isi Moden now. And uh, it has gathered an incredibly powerful group of young uh, economists from the whole of South Asia. And they've done extremely good work. So back to that, why, how did I get involved with growth and development? I think it was largely very long conversations I had with uh, Paul Ehrlich, because Paul Ehrlich was a member of my board. And he and I are very close friends. We had become close friends in Stanford the year, a couple of years before. And he, of course, saw things from the global point of view because his work on the impact of humanity on the biosphere takes a global shape. He's a great ecologist, so he'll give you umpteen examples at the local level. But he was concerned with the pressure humanity is facing on nature. And I think that's conversations with him over, over several years and really intense content. And he used to teach me ecology and I used to teach him economics. We are really very close friends. Um, that directed me towards trying to redo growth and development economics and then the economics of poverty. Because what I saw was that the economics of poverty said nothing about the stuff that you and I are discussing now. I mean, the received economics of poverty. The unreceived economics of poverty, which is what you, you have been doing, and so many of our friends have been doing, but they're not exactly mainstream development economics in the sense I don't see them, at least I didn't used to see them in the Journal of Development Economics, which was the, the prominent uh, place for it. It used to be somewhere else, maybe World Development or EPW. Uh, right. Although that's changed, I think. Uh, I, think I, I hope so. I think all the work that you and others have done have changed that. So, so now I think it's certainly the case that the mainstream journals are publishing work on the interrelations between ecosystems and, and the economy. So let me ask you, uh, so 
I think that getting to this period, which is the 2000s, late 90s, that's when you did quite a bit of your work on wealth accounting. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of central to the review. Yeah. So, I, well, it's, it's a very important part of the review. So I wanted to get your view on this. So basically accounting for natural wealth in economic terms is obviously a complex and difficult task because... The natural world is very complex and its interactions with the economy also complex. And it's also the case that lots and lots of these assets have public good aspects to them. And many assets are not privately owned. So and even privately owned assets, like someone might own a forest, but that forest might be producing public services beyond what it produced, provides for the owner. So when the owner values that forest in financial terms that he could get so much if he cut down the wood, that doesn't capture the full value. So in the review, one of the things that you emphasize, in fact, it's perhaps one of the most important messages of the review is how strongly the economy is dependent on ecology. And the question is, in quantitative terms, what's the value of natural capital in, uh, as compared to the value of produced capital and the value of human capital. How do we think about that quantitatively, given that individuals' balance sheets, a firm's balance sheets, mostly don't have this natural capital? They'll have aspects of some of it, uh, but it's only some aspects, right? And perhaps the most important ones are left out there because of this public good nature. So. How does the review go about this? You know, what's the magnitude? How should we think about this in quantitative terms? And conceptually, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. Well, of course, we did. I did that through examples. What you're talking about are estimating the externalities that are involved in our activities, things that are missing in the private calculation, whether it's through markets or whatever. The calculations of the person who is making the decision, let's put it that way. That's the simplest way of putting it. Um, so it's characterizing the externalities. Where I think I would rephrase your question is in not asking what is the proportion of wealth in the form of natural capital, human capital, uh, produced capital, because that's not a guide to action. If something is small or large relative to the other, it doesn't tell me that I should be accumulating or decumulating it. What we should be looking for is changes to the wealth. And I think you're, you're absolutely right for pointing out that towards the end of the 90s, since we were doing a little bit of a personal history here, uh, the key, key publication was the one uh, with uh, Carl Jaron Mailer. Mailer and I were talking about uh, how to include um, nature in economic accounting. He was always interested in economic accounting. That goes back to his early work in 1970s. But he didn't know how to do it, actually. He just simply said there are these externalities. Fine. But end of the day, what is it that we want to measure at the end of the year and compare it with the previous year to say whether there's been progress or regress? Currently, we do it with GDP, but obviously that's not good. We want to do something else. And I think what we did was uh, we had one advantage. Usually, we economists, we work with the Hamiltonian of optimization exercises. Uh, subject to constraints, of course, huge numbers of constraints, including externalities and so forth. They're looking at second best, third best, fourth best optima, and then trying to tease out accounting prices. But we usually use the Hamiltonian, and the Hamiltonian is a flow. 
the what our revelation was one day out of just sheer accident, we went back to Bellman's formulation, which is in terms of the value function. Now the value function is a stock. And if you differentiate the value function in terms of its fact, you know, what drives the value, they are stocks. And we immediately saw a wealth account coming out. Literally, if it was a five minute job and we sort of realized that that was it to elaborate on that idea. And we published the paper in 2000. And what you're asking is at the end of the year, how does our wealth look like relative to the previous year? If you're looking at from the perspective of the planning commission or the national council case, and some assets will have gone up, uh, some will have gone down. And they will have been, and you want to evaluate them with shadow prices, obviously, ideally. So we bring the full flow of ways of measuring, estimating shadow prices. And there is quite a lot of very good work done. Most recently, best work that's been done has been by Sandy. I mean, Sandy has done magnificent work, whether it's shrimp farms, <laughs> whether it's coastal fishery, whether it's mangroves, whether it's, so I've lifted a lot of that work in the review. Uh, in fact, Sandy, you know, South Asian, African, Latin American economist feature in my review uh, far more extensively than you might, others may imagine, but that's because they don't read papers that have not been published <laughs> in those top six journals, I guess. But I think that's rubbish. It's just a completely waste of uh, uh, intellectual direction. Uh, so, yes, do I know how India should do it? I don't, of course. It would be now left. I've got the procedures in place. I've got the grammar in place. I like to think I've got that. I've narrated the many, many small-scale studies that, that, that have been done by our friends and yourself, by the way, and you know the whole lot of us. Whether it's asking yourself policy changes like to be hand over the forest to the local, your own work, uh, which has been remarkable uh, in my judgment on uh, natural, natural experiments on forests to uh, the management of forests by communities across the state. Uh, those all fit together now to me because they are telling me that policy could be small institutional changes. Policies could be small investment projects. At the analytical level, it doesn't matter what it is. All you're saying is, what's the perturbation? What change are you bringing about by policy, one way or the other? And then see how it affects wealth. And I think that's what I tried to sell, uh, try to, to make clear in the review. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, very much so. So what you're saying is that ultimately it's these changes in wealth. And of course, there are many different things that constitute our portfolio here. And it is policy changes that we could make that increases our wealth. Yeah, right. that's right. That's exactly right. But I should say, I mean, lest our listeners feel it's a blank canvas. It's not a blank canvas. What we do know from other kinds of evidence, which is also illustrated in the review, about the rate at which natural capital is declining because we're, we're essentially eroding it. Uh, we know that uh, the first port of call would be to ask what's happening to natural capital uh, as a consequence of this policy. Okay? Right. Because Not only to the things that we usually look at, that is to say our produced capital stocks and our yeah. human capital, I, but I we need to now, take those. Yeah, we, I think we now know that uh, pretty much everywhere. And for example, let me give you a good example. 
uh, export is a primary product, which includes pretty much the whole of Africa, if you like. I would, in the review comes loud and clear, they ought to have an export tax on the primary product uh, because we ought to be paying, importers ought to be paying more because essentially what's happening is a wealth transfer from the poor to the rich because of these missing markets, these missing, these externalities. So the price of export is far below uh, the social cost of those for the exporting country. So it's perverse what's happening. And yet in the international sphere, of course, we are constantly being told to encourage exports, otherwise, you know, opening up trade and so forth. But opening up trade in a world with sort of shot through these adverse externalities is bad economics. So let me ask you about a specific uh, point in the review, uh, which sounded uh, really like a very startling statistic. You presented a simple calculation showing that the average annual yield of primary producers, meaning plants, algae, yep. and you know those parts, uh, those living things, which actually um, I guess use photosynthesis and therefore constitute the bottom of the food chain for the rest of the ecosystem. Yep. That the that the that, that annual average yield was estimated to be about nineteen percent some twenty years ago, and of course nineteen percent is much higher than typical yields on nearly any investment that you can think of. And that suggests that the world is investing too much in the wrong things and that it should be investing more in primary producers in particular. So could you kind of explain that a little bit in simple terms? And also there is the issue of whether uh, in economic terms, it should be the marginal return that we care about. And of course, the average could be an estimate of the marginal return, but it might not. The average could be quite higher than the marginal return, depending so could you tell us, say a little bit more about that? And well, it's a, brilliant, it's a brilliant question because of the, the kicker you had at the end of the question. I'm glad you brought that. Yes, I'm very proud of that calculation because it proved almost to me conclusively before all macroeconomic estimates of natural capital that we are on a really bad path. So let's take the figures as they are. 19, let's say 19% versus 5% just for the sake of argument for produced capital, 5%. Now that alone doesn't say that we are mismanaging things because you have a capital gains term to the poor, you know, the, the relative price of the two. If it were efficient, then price of produced capital relative to natural capital should be rising at about 14% per year. Then you would be indifferent between the two assets. But of course, from all the other data, it's telling me that actually natural capital is declining and the others are increasing. So the, the capital gains will be the reverse. In fact, natural capital be so, so that sort of settles that part. Now, the quick kicker that you asked, which is what about the marginal and the average? Well, you're quite right. If you had a completely concave production function of nature, then you're quite right. The marginal would be uh, uh, smaller than the average, uh, I guess. That's right. Um, but we're looking at a very nonlinear system and we're looking at all the other data were telling us that we're nearly tipping points out there. I mean, we have really crashed our natural capital to the extent. I mean, why else is there COP26? They're talking about 1.5 degrees, you know, and, and you know, anything beyond that. So if you have that, you've got these non-convexity, then of course the marginal could be even more. So that's point number one. Point number two is that we have a spatially uh, dispersed capital asset. 
So you have, on the one hand, you have the tundra, which has natural capital, which has primary producers, which you were talking about. Then we also have the, um, the uh, rainforest. We have the desert, we have the tropical rainforest. So you have marginal re returns, if you like, uh, dispersed across the, of primary producers, that is the yield, uh, right? And we'll be looking at the maximum to see where we should be uh, investing. Investing means letting alone, letting it to regenerate. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so we should uh, be looking at the highest marginal yield, right? Because that will direct us to the, those areas where we ought to let alone. And I think we're right in saying that we really need to protect the rainforest. I mean, they have 50% uh, of the world species or, and so forth. I mean, you know, the, the, they are hugely productive. Uh, the tropical right. rainforest, the Western Ghats, for example, and the, the rainforest, the Malaysia, Indonesia, Congo, the Amazon Basin, uh, those are really jeopardized. Unfortunately, of course, they also happen to be in the poorer parts of the world. So you have a right. double kick here. And uh, I think the review tries to do something about that. Yeah. So let me just come back to the point you made just now when you were responding to the question about marginal versus average. Your point was that, that we could have um, a convex yield curve rather than a, a purely concave one. And that would result in the marginal yield being actually higher than this average that we can calculate. And that is because there's this possibility that we can see very drastic declines as the stock of a particular ecosystem or biome or you know, resource declines, right? Um, and so you referred to the rainforest in particular as being threatened uh, and that they're the ecosystem functions might be severely threatened, right? You might have a complete flip of an ecosystem like the Amazon from being a very rich, diverse rainforest to being a much, much, much less productive and uh, diverse savanna, right? That's one of the things right. that people have talked about as a danger. So these are sort of huge, uh, you know, kind of gigantic, really frightening possibilities in terms of the impacts they will have, not only on that particular country or continent, but on the whole world, right? Absolutely. Um, so in some sense, going back to what you said earlier, right? There are all these micro studies, right? Like Sandy, others have been doing around the world. In some sense, that is kind of small ball stuff compared to this sort of threat, right? If we keep going on the path we're going and some system, some enormous system like the Amazon flips, right? And we're left with something vastly less productive. We can have climatic changes, hydrological changes on a scale which will kind of create chaos for, for hundreds of millions of people. In some sense, there seems to be a disconnect between the local microeconomic issues and these you know, kind of gigantic nightmarish threats, right? They're so big that one can't, you know, one cannot even wrap one's head around them, right? You cannot imagine the consequences. So I'm just wondering, isn't it a bit kind what of looking the wrong place to sort of focus on these, you know, micro studies and so on, if there's something really that scary that could happen and that, you know, perhaps is on the way to happening, Shouldn't a lot more attention be going into that 
and into sort of reducing uncertainty about that and you know trying to make sure it doesn't happen you asking about the, it, it's, it's a luxury uh, studying micro villages I think I mean I couldn't disagree with you more and I know you're asking me you're a microeconomist yourself but I know where you're coming from I think you will agree that uh, um, there's no question about it this is it's a wrong a wrong attitude because it is the millions and millions of small errors that we are making because our institutions, our own misbehavior and so forth, which are adding up to this gigantic problem that we are facing. Uh, so you need to understand something about that. And in fact, my review is very at pains to integrate the macro and the micro. It spends most of its time on the micro and then ends up the macro in chapter four, and then finally in chapter 13, where the wealth is, but then the closed models and so forth, you know, the macroeconomic models are in the sort of after the, some of the micro stuff has been discussed. So that's that's point number one. And that's, I, but that's in a sense a banal observation because obviously macro doesn't happen by itself. You've got all these small things are happening. The more important thing is that unless we understand, and I think one of the great uh, defects of growth and development economics and the economics of poverty has been that those who actually make, are influential in these fields have really forgotten that there are people out there, there are communities out there who are managing their lives, okay? So to say that we are facing a threat but we haven't yet got there is wrong. Lots of communities have fallen under already. How do you explain distress migration, for example? Uh, they have seen it, they have seen the collapse. And for them, that's as bad as we like to think will happen to us, those privileged us, you know, uh, when if, God forbid, the Amazon were to flip into a savannah. They've seen it already. So that's happened. For yeah. those people, it's already happened. The disaster has, has already happened. Of course. Right. And I think it's, it's extremely uh, mischievous of the like, received economics of poverty, received economics of growth and development, to ignore that fact that nature has been staring at us out there on their, you know, in, in their work without their. You know, noticing it because they haven't bothered to actually go and ask villagers what you know, do you do you see land as a capital asset do you see the fishery as a capital asset and so forth no we would i mean you would say well they're not capital asset they're uh, their background or something that's the easy part the harder thing and i think the more subtle reason micro studies are extremely important is that okay so we have a, a threat and we need to protect the amazon now at one level i could say yes we can do that by let us say the global community subsidizing, say Brazil, paying them payment for ecosystem services because they're producing a global public good and the public good happens to be within a national ju jurisdiction. So it's not completely disingenuous of uh, the Brazilian authorities to say, why should we support the whole of the globe? You know, we need to develop, quote unquote, okay? Now, never mind whether they're gangsters or whether they're good people, that's not the point, but there's a logic there, okay? What would you do? The right thing would be, and we do that at the, at the one of the recommendations of the uh, review has been that we ought to engage in a negotiation to subsidize them, to protect so that they could protect. And there are ways of monitoring that these days with satellites and everything. It's not difficult to monitor as to whether they're compliant. Where does that money come from? That's, that's one point. And the second point is just to say you will protect them is not enough because you now need to see how to refashion the institutions that are there that will protect it. So for example, you need to empower, for example, 
concentrates are the indigenous populations there, like we should in the Indian case, uh, because they know a lot about the local ecology. It's all well good and saying, uh, we're going to invest in nature. But that's a very subtle notion, investing in nature. And people uh, who have lived in, in that their, their local ecosystems for thousands of years have a better understanding of it. In fact, your own work suggested it, uh, I was referring to before. So you want to do that. And for that, you need the microscope. What I'm saying is a banal observation. You really do need to fuse the two. And I'm so, and my review led hugely on the micro studies because the macro work is of course, from my point of view, worthless. So I needed to reconstruct the macro work. I didn't need to reconstruct the micro stuff because there's already there. And that's really very important. So first question, however, how do you finance that? The subsidy, suppose you want to do that. Congo, Malaysia, Indonesia, and so forth. And you come up with the billions of dollars annual, let's say, just for the sake of argument. Well, there is a global public good out there, which is open access, the oceans. Right. And they're free. That's right. outrageous. They should not be free. All these container ships <laughs> and the fish, fisheries that are there, they should be charged their rent. And very crude calculations suggest we could be earning, we means humanity, um, yes. billions. And we should, because it's not only for the revenue could be spent on many other things besides development purposes or whatever, you know, equality and payment for these e other ecosystem services that I've just now mentioned. Uh, but it's also good because it, it will reduce pressure on these. And one of the re recommendations of the review was to the creation of a new international institution, like maybe under the United Nations itself. I mean, after all, we have UNEP, we have U UNDP, we have UNIDO and so forth. But I think it should be on the table now. Unfortunately, neither COP26 nor COP15 is discussing it. It's not on the agenda. So right. that's a long-winded answer to your excellent question, namely how to fuse the micro and the macro. Okay. I think that's really helpful. So let me go on and ask you about, in some sense, the review is, has an implicit critique of mainstream economics and explicit sometimes, I guess. And you've been quite explicit in our conversation today already. So, however, it is true that standard neoclassical economics has recognized the problem of pollution externalities and so on for a hundred years or so, at least. And there's a standard neoclassical literature on policies to deal with these externalities, emissions taxes and pollution taxes and uh, tradable permits and regulations of various kinds and so on. Is there something in the review which you would say goes beyond these standard prescriptions in terms of the actual responses that are required on the ground to get things moving in the right direction? I think, well, it would be, be difficult for me to summarize how many there are. We have a, there is a final uh, chapter 21, which summarizes the policy implications in various guises. So I'd like to respond to your question in a slightly, you know, five degree off, so to speak, uh, but yes. not, not more than, not more than five, five degree off. It is absolutely right at the micro level, the notion of externalities has been there for a long time, that's 100 years, as you rightly point out. But I think there is no question in the post-war period, I can't tell from the pre-war period because I haven't read any of that literature. Uh, there were any other than beyond, beyond Pigou that is. In the post-war literature, externalities fell off the lens. Uh, if you look at growth models, for example, um, and 
uh, starting with Harold onwards, but I mean, all the way through. Uh, and it's reflected in uh, textbooks, for example. And you don't, uh, one of the things I do emphasize in the review is the interplay between policy at the level of government and academic publications. Because today's decision makers were yesterday's students of economics, by the way. So there's a huge uh, synergy between the two. Each reinforces the other. Uh, and in fact, my introduction begins with that observation. And that's extremely important to bear in mind. Um, in the textbooks, where does externality, or at least the textbooks we've I've seen in the 90s up to the 20s, it'll be the chapter 25 maybe, or maybe a box. I, I totally agree with you here because every time I've been asked to contribute to a chapter on the economy, my chapter is always the last one in the book. Well, there you are. So, <laughs> so, so one of the things that the review does is to show the huge rise in adverse externalities that have accompanied the growth process. Okay, now to give you now a central uh, answer to your question as to how that affects policy. In academic literature, growth models almost invariably, at least the, the ones I've seen, let's say up to the last five years or so, had the notion of the representative household. Yes. Okay. And that's optimizing subject to constraints maybe or whatever, you know, capital constraints or whatever, but, and you're trying to simulate the US economy through an, uh, and then you're trying to estimate the utility function and God knows what else. Now, suppose you ask, what's the justification for that? There are many, many uh, ways of trying to criticize that, but here's one criticism, which will speak to your concern, the question, uh, concern that uh, behind your question. Somebody could say, well, no, look, the household, I mean, a dynasty. We're looking at a dynasty because after all, people care about their children. And if they're rational, they will know that their children will care about their children. And therefore, by recursion, they will take the grandchildren's well-being into account and the great-grandchildren and so forth. That's a stuff good. That's a, and it's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about it. If you postulate rationality elsewhere, why not here? In any case, who are you, given the fact that parents care for their children more than anybody else does? So that seems to be a reasonable thing. The problem is, I may care about my entire dynasty rationally. You may do that for your dynasty. But because of these externalities, the fact that I don't necessarily care about your dynasty as much as you do and vice versa will mean there's a distortion here. It will mean that the discount rates we're using are higher than they would, they should. They would if we actually <laughs> remove those externalities. Right. Now, now look at the opening that gives us. That's just one example. Right. I, I mean, I'm deeply unsatisfied with received growth and development economics and the economics of poverty precisely because of these small issues or not so small issues, because they together they infiltrate and give us a very wrong picture of our place in the biosphere, humanity, you know, the place of the human economy in the biosphere. I can give you many, many other examples and the review is full of it. Together, they give me a very misleading picture. And if you give me one more minute on this one, which is that the economics of climate change in some sense has helped this misconception and no fault of the people who have been writing on it because they've seen one very easy route, which is clean energy. So a technological fix can handle the climate system. The problem is the climate system is taken as outside any of the other services 
systems that the biosphere has, and that's been a disaster. And you can't handle biodiversity by technical fixes, otherwise we wouldn't have had this conversation for the last 50 minutes. So uh, in a way, our entire conception of what lies ahead, what are future possibilities, uh, at least as I argue in the review, has been misplaced because the biosphere is bounded and received growth and development economics has one key assumption, which is hidden. We don't notice it. And that's, that assumption is also there in my book with Heal, which is that indefinite growth is possible in material output, is possible because human ingenuity can ensure through capital accumulation or accumulation of ideas, creation of ideas, that in the long run, even though you've got a, a you know, very, very large economy, the, the contribution of nature will become vanishingly small. You can do with the vanishingly small biosphere services, no matter how large the, and the asymptotic feature of this is belies, it goes against all the evidence because pure ecological truths tell us that the efficiency with which we can convert nature's goods and services into output is bounded, no matter how clever we are. I think I, I sort of totally agree with you. And it comes back to this issue when you said that policy today's students are tomorrow's policymakers. And even though what we've been discussing is much more sophisticated than what the average graduate of any college or university in the world will take away with them after they've had a degree, right? And the problem, as I see it, is it's not so easy to fix because the fact that you assume that the place of nature is so limited or can be made so limited is sort of an assumption by omission, right? It's much harder to fix an assumption by omission than an assumption that is specifically listed because once you write it down, then it kind of stares out at you, right? And it becomes obvious that this is clearly a critical assumption and not one that is innocuous. But the problem, of course, is that the way the standard model is formulated is that you just leave it out, right? You have capital, you have labor, and that's the end of the story. And that's really, I think, that's the root of the trouble as I see it in terms of the educational aspect in, yeah. in economics, that most students are never going to be exposed to this higher level of sophistication, right? And that too, only if they're interested in the issue and they probe into it, right? Because even though that literature is there, they may never come across it. Um, and the, the difficulty is going to be, how do we get rid of that assumption by omission, right? The, the problem is that the benchmark is profoundly misleading. So with climate change, as you said, the problem is that you know, there's this waste product that the economy produces called carbon dioxide, and we're accumulating it, and it's toxic in large enough quantities. But that's true of almost every economic activity. It's going to deplete some resource or some asset, and it's going to produce some, uh, well, some asset which has a negative value, if you like, some waste, some debris. And this is such a fundamental aspect of the economy. It's kind of bizarre that it never appears. You can read a whole textbook in economics. And as you said, right in chapter 25, there will be this stuff about pollution externalities and it is always treated as a circumscribed, you know, yeah. problem to which you can have a, yeah, okay, this policy fix, write down this tax and then, uh, you know, but it's actually, the problem is that it's actually pervasive. And I'm thinking, 
does not admit that. That's right. Uh, I don't know the solution to this. All I can say, because I, you know, because there is a, <laughs> I think there's a PD game here. First, you know, who's going to take the first move? You need an imaginative chairman of a prominent university department of economics. It has to be a prominent one because otherwise it's sort of, in fact, graduate students won't go to the one, to that department if it's not prominent enough. Maybe you have to have joint courses with ecologists. The interesting thing is the ecology is a subject which a good mathematical economist would be, should be very excited about because they have very similar models. To Absolutely. Yeah, as you know. Simon Levin once said to me that economics is a, it's a subfield of ecology. Well, I said, I think there's a little bit more to it than that. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I think that's right. And I've had great difficulty explaining to Sai why, because I don't quite see the, the deliberation and the second order intentions that humans have in, let us say, an amoeba. But <laughs> so, and beliefs and so forth, you know. Anyway. Um, so that requires, it's very easy to, for us to do. It's not so the maths, we tend to have uh, training in maths when we come into economics, a lot, lot of people do, or physics, uh, very few from biology. And of course, it's only a small bit of ecology which has been uh, of interest to us in the sense of modeling. Uh, much of ecology is field work, as is right, it should be, that's for sure. So there is that problem. Um, uh, but I don't know how else to do it because no department wants on its own to make the shift. It's interesting, the psychology, I do not understand. For example, behavioral economics has borrowed from psychology in a big way. I mean, psychology, you know, every, every graduate student now wants to say that, you know, I've been reading this book on psych behavioral psychology, I guess. Um, that seems to have come in very easily. Several other disciplines, sub-disciplines have come in. Finance came in pretty fast into economics departments, that is. I don't know. I don't know how to how, how, how that should be broken. The problem should be broken. The only thing I've done is I've tried in my review to create a textbook. And by the way, it will be published by Cambridge University Press in the next few months. When I say published version, I mean, it'll be the same text. It's a bound version. It'll be a book, yes. And it will remain free, of course, on the internet because it's a treasury publication. Right. Um, but... You know, I'm no great hopes that this will help create an interest in this field in mainstream economics departments, which is where it needs to be. I mean, there's plenty of this, our kind of stuff in schools of environmental schools, of course, on ag econ departments in the United States, um, right. but not in the economics departments. And I think the status is so high of economics departments that it really needs to come in there. Now, but I have no idea as to how to. Let me go on to another point uh, which struck me quite forcefully, which is the, the point that you made a little while ago about the finiteness of the biosphere and the implication that it has that about for unbounded economic growth, right? So all our growth models, of course, don't uh, typically don't account uh, for these constraints. Now, e ecologists and uh, some ecological econ economists and others that have uh, sort of taken this seriously and they've come to the conclusion that we should have degrowth rather than growth, that economic growth is actually doing more harm than good. Um, and there's the response of many mainstream neoclassical economists is to say, well, um, well, let me quote one of them, a prominent uh, uh, scholar, Branko Milanovic, 
His argument is that the world is a poor and unequal place. And if you don't allow further economic growth, then the only way that you can raise the living standards of poor people all over the world, which very much need raising, uh, nobody would dispute that, uh, is going to be by taking away vast amounts of income from people in high income countries, right? And not just a few, right? It's, we're not talking 1% here, we're talking 86% of the population of high income countries would have their income reduced if you wanted to bring, you know, most of the poor people in the world up to the median income of uh, developed countries today, right? So Milanovic's response is that, that the degrowth proposition is simply irresponsible, right? So what would you say, I mean, what, to, to the, and of course, these are ongoing debates. Can I ask you to comment on them? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I don't have a, a, a sanguine an answer I can give. I don't have a really sanguine answer. But I've always worried about, you know, look, this, this observation that we are on spaceship Earth and uh, we're circular economy and so forth, that's been around for a long while. The reason it doesn't get anywhere is that to say that the economy is circular can be countered by the economist by saying, well, yeah, but the circle can expand. And that's what we were discussing a few minutes ago when I talked, and you rightly pointed out that one of the things that the review does is to look at the complete circularity that the waste products and so forth, and that, that the hidden assumption is that right. we can do, do without the biosphere. It's not circularity, which is the kicker. The kicker is that we can't do without the biosphere. So yes. metaphors can go that so so much and not no farther. Okay. Likewise about degrowth, these expressions don't mean very much to me. What we do in, in these to show the impact inequality, what we are demanding from nature in terms of the services, and and compare it with what it's a, she's able to supply on a sustainable basis, and we call that the impact inequality. This the paper was published with Scott Barrett, Aisha Desgupta, and myself, and a whole bunch of people. You know, including Ken Narrow and you know, and, and so and Paul Ellick from the Bear Institute only last year in the PNAS, the National Academy of Science. That's key because the gap between demand and supply is so large, it's telling us where we are, you know, what the trouble is. And that's looking at the biosphere's point of view. So the review is telling us of all the distortions we have created. And it seems to me the right thing to do is to try and remove the distortions, look at it and see what the accounting prices should be. Now, I, we've gone through how difficult it is, exercise is going to be, but it's not starting from scratch. We have quite a bit of material already. We have hints from both macro data and micro studies. That's going to alter the rate of technological change and the direction, more important, the direction of technological change. Because the incentives for entrepreneurs are going to shift if the price structure shifts. And I don't have to spell out in which way. At the moment, right. you don't save on nature because nature is too cheap. So you save on labor costs. You save on so you have the chainsaw and you invent the chainsaw and you invent ways of tracking schools of fish, you know, and so forth. All right. Now, if right. that becomes very expensive, the technology will shift in a different direction. Can I predict it? No, I can't predict it. So it seems to me the right thing to do is to see how we. To me, it doesn't make great sense to say what will be the lifestyle of our great-grandchildren if we take nature seriously. I don't know. I like to think they may be even better than ours, by the way, for the simple reason that we'll have shifted the direction of our uh, economy uh, in such a way uh, that takes into account our best estimates of costing the stuff that we're using, which are not 
So just as 100 years ago, they couldn't have predicted the lifestyle of us today, we shouldn't. And that's, to me, it's a waste. We ought to put our money on problems and then see how that will include income inequality. If we are not doing it now, why should we think we're going to do it later? So that's a very important problem, goes without saying, inequality, uh, in, income inequality, or wealth inequality across countries and so forth, plus this intergenerational inequality that we are creating, we have been creating. They need to be amalgamated. How it's, what it's going to look like, I don't know. But one thing I think we do know is that we, the rich, should be prepared now for their own grandchildren to do some sacri immediate sacrificing. Uh, that is to say, uh, as we are, you know, as very often people, households do, changing their consumption patterns, changing their travel patterns and so forth. These are small acts, but if many of us do it, they will add up to, if nothing else, a demonstration effect. So I wouldn't worry about degrowth. I don't use the term that in my, in my review, there is no such expression here because I, I don't think it's very- Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that, that if we change the incentives so that people are motivated, companies, entrepreneurs, business people are motivated to invest more in natural capital and less in chainsaws. And we can do that. We can change the structure of taxes and prices and regulations in order to steer investments in those directions so that people will want to invest in those things because that's how they'll make money, not by destroying nature, but by adding to it. Yeah. Um, then, you know, as you said, you don't know what the world is gonna look like as a result because we will have changed the way we do things and we've changed, we will be changing the direction in which we're going if we do those things. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that you're optimistic in that sense, right? That you give us that hope that if we provide the right incentives and if we change the direction in which we're investing and the kinds of capital we're investing in and we motivate people to invest more in natural capital, make those returns higher, not only socially, but privately, then maybe, you know, things will look a lot brighter 50 years from now. Um, yes, there is another point which is I can very briefly mention because it's something that you have yourself worked on and more more thoroughly than I have uh, it's in the review too I think one of the real weaknesses of contemporary economic thinking uh, economic theory in growth and development and economics of poverty really does see the individual as a solipsist solipsically are we a social animals and there's a vast literature there in sociology, anthropology, which I've lifted, literally lifted from my review to show that we have these coordination problems. We face coordination problems because we have interdependent preferences. And that's another sign of hope because our, our sense of well-being is influenced by what we see others doing. And if that is the case, then if we t all take a shock hit, it'll be, it may be far less of a trauma than if we have to unilaterally take the hit. And this was shown through the warriors in this country, and there's plenty of evidence of that. And, 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 and in some deep sense, I would say, I don't know that the average person today is happier in any measurable sense, and there is a lot of measurement of that, than they were 70 years ago, which is in 70 years ago is a lot poorer, but it was a shared uh, lot poorer, <laughs> and right. it's a shared lot richer. And I, I, think, I think we really do a, a huge amount of mischief by creating this pic picture of a solitary individual. And uh, because that's not what we are. Yeah, I think I could totally agree that, you know, the, 
that our social norms, you know, what we're used to consuming, what we think we should be consuming, what we like to consume, very heavily conditioned on what we have done in the past, what we've gotten used to, and what people around us are doing, right? And so if we... Fats and fashions are a very immediate example of it. Let me turn to another aspect of your work, which you mentioned at the beginning, which is that in your PhD thesis, you worked on the problem of optimum population. And I, and I know that you have continued to work on population issues throughout, and recently you have a book on, on those issues uh, that came out, I think, was it last year, the year before? 2019, yes, year before. 2019, right. Um, but you're one of the few economists, I would, well, one of the few prominent and well-known economists who has stuck his head out and put his head on the chopping block, so to speak, by actually doing that and persisting in doing that over many decades. Um, there is, I find, actually a taboo. I think that word is justified. It's a strong word, but I think it's justified in discussing the impact of large populations on the ecosystems and biomes and biosphere and the implications that has for human well-being, for the economy, for welfare, and so on. And this taboo is very much there in economics. Um, it's, but it's much more widespread. It's, it's, in, it's in academia more generally. It's in the media, right? It's in polite society, so to speak. And I think that's clearly harmful. We shouldn't have taboos. We should not be afraid to discuss any issue whatsoever, right? Um, why do you think we have this taboo and what can we do about it? I mean, does it, does it matter in the sense, perhaps it's not that consequential. What do you think? Does it matter and what can we do about it? Well, I think uh, it's hugely consequential and it matters enormously. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be spending so much time working on it, and uh, you would not know, but I've been much involved in discussing this um, with parliamentarians, um, government officials in the UK. And, you know, since the review was published, you know, the UK, UK Treasury has kept my team since the publication. It will go on and the team will stay until the end of this calendar year. So we've got about 10 months or 11 months of uh, activity beyond the publication of the review. And they did that because they, the Treasury wanted the review to be disseminated. And I've taken part in now over 250 events. Uh, this is one of them, but you know, things like lectures, interviews, Q and A's and so forth. And uh, with, with various types of groups of people, um, international organizations, IMF and so forth. Um, and it, it is a taboo in the sense that I keep on raising it when the time is appropriate, for example. If I'm talking to the African, uh, development bank, then I do raise it and I do. And, and I can see that there is a resistance in the sense that they feel uncomfortable about it. And I don't see why. I mean, we don't feel uncomfortable talking about the food we eat. I don't see why we can't talk about the reproductive decisions we make. Now, why am I interested in it? I'm interested in it because of these externalities you're talking about. We've been discussing all through this last uh, hour or so. Uh, right. There's reproductive externalities as well. I mean, if numbers count, numbers do count because the total impact that we have on the environment will be our lifestyle numbers, per, per capita lifestyle numbers, because that'll be the total lifestyle, so to speak. And then the efficiency with which we convert nature's goods and services into final products, okay? So one of the factors is sitting, staring at us in the face. The question is, why do we want to avoid that? And if, if there is a gap between the two, demand and supply, then we need to pull down the demand and increase the supply. We've discussed all that in the last hour. Uh, one of them will be future population, obviously. 
if an additional child is going to create externalities because of this gap, all right, then why does the parent have a right which overrides, which trumps the right of a future generation, our grandchildren, to uh, have a cleaner world than otherwise? Cleaner means more productive biosphere. So in some ways, it's uh, in the review and in my uh, paper with uh, Aisha in 2017, which in some sense started both of us to think in terms of in the, the context of rights. Um, and I think it's rather curious that the father and daughter write on, write on uh, reproductive rights, but because we felt this was a reason, it's a good question to ask. One of the difficulties is that we have, we play fast and loose with the word right. And uh, we have since, particularly since the early 70s with the work of Ronnie Dworkin, uh, Nozick, and in a interesting way, John Rawls. But John Rawls was not talking about rights on a day-to-day -day basis. He was looking at the rights that would be enshrined in the original position regarding the basic structure of society, okay, political and civil liberties and so forth. He won't deny there would be a lot of externalities there, there'd be taxed and so forth and so on. But the words like Ronnie Dworkin taking rights seriously was had a world in which there were no externalities of any significant form of this kind because he didn't address the question, whose rights? If you have too many rights, the clash you may have is zero intersection of the space of allowable activities. I mean, that's the difficulty with, and I think we as economists have been extremely clever over the centuries in thinking in terms of trade-offs. Yes. Precisely right, because we compare gains and losses. Now that sounds vulgar uh, to the moral theorist, but, that's but I would say that that may be vulgar, but it's not vacuous. Right. Which is where if you have too many rights that you know you have both the right of the future generation to have a, a clean earth or a viable biosphere, a productive biosphere, and we have a right to do anything we like, but then you've got a zero in you know, a null set of it. Right, right, right. So I think it is very dangerous to avoid these questions. It's a matter of getting into habit, civilized discourse, rational discourse, reason discourse over current taboos will make the taboo look very odd in the future. And think of all the things that Victorians couldn't say, which we feel are completely acceptable. Why? Because we have been doing it. Right. Absolutely. So, I think, yeah. so I think it's an extremely, it's not just the usual stuff of, you know, there should be freedom of expression, but here we are talking about life and death. We are looking at, you know, whether we're going to completely screw up the biosphere in the next 70, 80 years or so. Uh, so I think uh, it's more than just a pretty notion of Voltaire and so forth. I'm not invoking Voltaire. I'm simply saying <laughs> these are there are externalities here and there are some clashes of rights. So we ought to dispense with the notion of rights, willy-nilly, that is. Obviously, there will be certain types of rights which we we'll feel don't interfere, don't have these externalities of kind. Yes. But that requires good discussion, empirical work, as well as analytical uh, a grammar. Okay, so I think we have uh, kind of covered uh, a lot of ground and um, it's been a real pleasure to uh, talk to you and uh, again, Partha, for a long time. Uh, and I hope that we'll meet in person soon and carry on this discussion. So oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. well, it's been a pleasure as well, as always, having a chat with you, Strom. I learned so much from you anyway, all these years. Uh, and we hope we'll continue to do that. And yes, you, I, I hope you'll continue to send me your papers, by the way. Which I will always read. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I do hope that uh, 
the review will make its impact in uh, introductory textbook economics. I, I think I that's so where change is going to come. I hope so. Okay. Right. Bye, Thank you, Partha. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care.